Think about how you live your life as you join us today on Abounding Grace. If I'm in the presence of the Lord, I'm going to be well-pleased. I'm going to be in his presence. But if I'm here on earth, my goal is to be well-pleasing to the Lord. It not that a great way to live your life? Because it doesn't really matter what surrounds you. And it really doesn't matter what's said about you. It doesn't really matter what people think about you. When your aim is to please the Lord, then your focus remains strong and your integrity remains intact. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. Heaven is not simply a destination. For the Christian, it's a motivation. That's what the Apostle Paul wanted the Corinthian church to know and believe. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're reminded that we all will give an account to the Lord for the things we've done on earth, even believers. That ought to inspire us to make it our goal to please the Lord. Picking up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, here's Pastor Ed Taylor. The theme in this section of 2 Corinthians is Paul in the midst of defending himself with a fellowship family that God used him to plant many years earlier. He had spent 18 months in the city of Corinth, and through this faithfulness there, a church was birthed, and some time has passed. Some time has passed, and in the time passing, and in the distance, he had these false teachers come in and begin to turn part of the church against him and start to speak evil of him in his absence. And it was very unfortunate. By the time we get to chapter 6, he has been walking us through these contrasts. He has been leading us about encouraging the heavenly mindset, the eternal mindset. He's taught us that the earth and the things of this earth will not last forever. And that the decisions we make now will have an eternal impact. And there have been a series of contrasts. And because of the distance, again, uh, those that are listening on podcasts or on the website, you're just going from study to study. But for the sake of us that have been here taking the studies in real time, it's been some time. So it may do you well to go back and just pick up the last couple studies in 2 Corinthians 4, which I did. It was so encouraging to me just knowing that the Lord would have these teachings in light of what I would be facing personally and and really bringing to light the reality of, well, I'll show you in verse 16 of chapter 4. He said, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And then he says in verse 17, and it's easy to read, it's much harder to live, but it's true. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding weight and exceeding an eternal weight of glory. And while we do not look at the things which are seen, But at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul had his sight set on heaven. 
That, that's where he was. That's where he was able to find refuge in the light afflictions of his current predicaments, which there are many. We'll come to chapter 7 if you like to read ahead, and you'll find that there's a whole listing of things that he's faced for the gospel, a whole list of things that he's faced for the sake of the believers in Corinth. And on, depending on how you count them, uh, you could start with over, like I came up first with 29, and then uh, last night before uh, Caitlin went to bed, before we prayed together, we counted them again, and I came up with 32. So I don't know what that, where I'm missing or what I'm missing, but there are quite, he talks about, I mean, if you just see, um, again, flip over to chapter 7 real quick, he talks about coming to Macedonia, and he's got these conflicts and fears. Um, he, he's encouraged by the reality of, who and what is going on in his life and, and how the strength of his life is being built up in the reality of what God is doing and what he wants to accomplish. And, you know, he's talking about being bold and there's no rest and um, the incredible strength. Actually, it's not chapter 7, it's chapter 6. That's why I messed up. So right here. In all things, it says, verse 4, we commend ourselves, and then he goes on, patience, tribulations, needs, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, and we're actually in chapter 5. So we left off in verse 9. Let's jump there. Chapter 5, verse 9. Therefore, and he's therefore is pointing back to the previous verses, verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 6, we're always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the uh, Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. We're confident, yes. Verse 8, well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciousness, in your consciences. And so Paul sums it up that our goal of ministry is to persuade men. We are ambassadors of Jesus, and we are, it's almost like he says, whether I'm alive on earth, or alive in the presence of Jesus, my goal remains the same. It's to be well-pleasing to the Lord. So if I'm in the presence of the Lord, I'm going to be well-pleased. I'm going to be in his presence. But if I'm here on earth, that's my goal. My goal is to be well-pleasing to the Lord. It not that a great way to live your life? Because it doesn't really matter what surrounds you, and it really doesn't matter what's said about you, It doesn't really matter what people think about you. When your aim is to please the Lord, then your focus remains strong and your integrity remains intact. It's amazing to me how the studies in Nehemiah and 2 Corinthians seem to be overlapping. As we saw in the last couple of weeks on the, our weekend services, how Nehemiah has been gone, undergone some significant attacks, and he stood strong in his, in his integrity, in his calling, and in his life of really wanting to please the Lord and do what God's called him to do. Well, Paul's in the same place. And as he is in this section, defending himself, he says, look, this is our life. Our life is to please the Lord. And it's a great way to live your life. You're not worried about what people think. The Bible says this, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. I'll read it to you. 
from the New Living Translation. You're more familiar, I'm sure, than New King James. But in the New Living Translation, it says, Fearing people is a dangerous trap, but to trust the Lord means safety. And it's so true. Um, in the New King James, you probably memorized it, the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. But in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, it says, So we have continued praying for you ever since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you a complete understanding of what he wants to do in your lives. And we ask him to make you wise with spiritual wisdom. Then you will live your, then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord. Heavenly first, earthly second. And that's the perspective, Paul says. With all that's being said about him and all that's being believed about him. He says, look, look, look. I just live to please the Lord. I just, I, I, that's what we do. That's why we make it, verse 9, and you may even need to adopt this in some areas of your life, to make it your aim. That's the trajectory. That's the trajectory of your life. Where is your life pointing? I mean, where are the decisions you're making in life pointing? And so he says, whether we're present or absent, our aim is to please him. Verse 9, and when you live with the reality of what's up ahead, it motivates you to be pleasing the Lord right now. It's an automatic progression of the Spirit of God in your life. You're living with what's up ahead. It changes your motive now. And one young believer put it this way, and I quote, I want to be as zealous for God as I was for the devil. That's a different perspective. Because when you're living apart from a relationship with Jesus, then this world is really all there is. And there are momentary times of happiness... And there are momentary times of pleasure. And there are momentary times. Now, momentary is a relative term. That, that, time, that term momentary could be a long stretches of time where there's this false de- uh, deception of this, there's great satisfaction in the things of this world. And, and it's a trap in, in many ways because the Bible does say that God has given us all things to richly enjoy. But you and I will never fully enjoy relationships. We will never fully enjoy resources. We will never fully enjoy children, family, friends, even fully, again, fully enjoy your singleness apart from Jesus. It just will not live up to the reality of what God has designed it to be. It will always come short. And when you have no eternal perspective, then whatever's popular in the world is what you buy into. And over the years, you find out things are popular and they, you know, they go away and they come back. Like the 80s, isn't the 80s? The 80s are coming back. Just watch, just look, it's all coming back. Didn't that just go away 30 years ago? Now it's coming back. And whatever's popular and whatever's, you know, whatever, it's, it's like the morality of our world. You just kind of put your finger in there and you go, which way is the wind blowing? Because that's the way I think I'll go. But it's so destructive. And it leads to this always wondering and worrying and, Am I right? And, and maybe occasionally you'll start thinking about eternity and where will you go after you die? I mean, that's a good question to ask. What will happen to you after you die? Have you considered that? Well, Ed, you know, I grew up in a home that just said, once I die, I cease to exist. But you know, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that it's appointed once for a man to die and then the judgment. That there will be an, a reckoning or a Uh, an important uh, encounter with God where you'll have to give account for your life. In a few moments, we'll find out that even believers are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I'll explain a little bit what that means. 
But all of us are going to give an account for our lives of whether we lived by faith in Jesus or we lived taking our chances. I was one of those guys before I got saved that if you were to come and share the gospel with me and talk to me about hell, I'd make fun of you. And I'd make fun of you in such a way where, you know, I don't care about hell. I believe in God and I believe in heaven and I believe in hell and I don't care. I don't care how bad it is. I don't care how difficult it is because right now um, I'm living a life of partying. It seems to be okay for me. And if I end up going in hell, then I'll just party in hell too. How deceived. Let me tell you, friend, there's no party in hell. It's just anguish and eternal separation. Jesus described it in terms of gnashing of teeth. Have you ever been around someone that gnashes their teeth? It's just like, oh, you know, maybe you have a kid or maybe you're married. You're married to someone that grinds their teeth at night. Some people, it's so bad they have to wear a a mouthpiece so that they don't ruin their teeth. Because whatever's going on in the dream or whatever. Can you imagine like that noise being multiplied like on loudspeakers and and just anguish. Not just the sound, but the anguish and the pain and it's eternal, Jesus described. There's no party in hell. It's not going to be a transition from this life to the next. And if you have a relationship that is solid with the Lord, then the transition is going to be something glorious, eternal, in the presence of the Lord, full and whole with your new body. But apart from Jesus, it's going to be a rude awakening, one that can't be reversed. One where there's no intermediary place. Where the popular doctrine of the day is that, well, you can just go to purgatory and you have this intermediate place and while you're in purgatory, you can work your way out of judgment. That's not in the Bible. That doesn't exist. Purgatory is a doctrine of man. It's not true. There's not, there is no second chance after death. That's why the urgency of deciding for Jesus now is now. You don't want to be deceived like you can get another chance. I mean, any chances you get will be now while you're alive, while you're breathing. But there will be a day where you take your last breath. And so Paul is here thinking, man, while I'm alive, I live for the Lord. And he says in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. There is a judgment before Jesus that every believer and the important thing in verse 10 is we he's referring to us believers he's writing to a church full of believers he himself is a believer this is a judgment seat only for believers and what will be judged it says that each one will be received the things done in the body according to what he has done believer whether good or bad, the judgment seat. This is often referred to, you may remember it as the bima, B-E-M-A. It's the Greek word here, bima. Just means seat or step. This is the bima seat judgment of Christ. The term judgment seat is the this phrase is the only one word in the is really only one word in the Greek and refers to a raised platform or step where speeches were made or people had to account for their life before the judges. And For those of you that went with us 
as we toured through um, the footsteps of Paul, there were a couple cities there where the bema was still there, and it was kind of set up the way it was in Paul's time, and perhaps even one that he would stand on to stand before as a judgment to the judges or to the leaders of the city. It's just a step. Some of them were big, some of them were really small. And so it was a place also not only where there was judgment made, but there was also a place where the, the Bema seat where, where awards were given out to winners in the annual Olympic Games. So it's a time of judgment, but it's also a time of reward. And I want you to be careful not to confuse the Bema seat with the great white throne judgment. There are two different things. Because as you think about judgment, there is this thought over time that, that before God, there's just one big judgment. And I don't know if you've ever thought this. I know as a kid I did, where there's just one big judgment with God and we're all in line waiting our turn. And we're just tripping out. You know, some people are, man, I, whoa, you know, that guy got it. And, I, and then the next one oh, goes off on the cloud and the next one gets it. And, and the Bema is not this big general judgment. It is specific it is for us as believers to give account with what we've been given or the faithfulness of our life. There is no general judgment. Um, there are actually two very important judgments. The great, great right throne, which is the judgment for unbelievers, and now the bema seat, which is a judgment for us. And this is not a judgment of salvation. The great right throne is going to be the final, you know, this is it. What did you do with my son Jesus? We don't know exactly how it's going to go, but... We know, theologically, we know that there's going to be some giving account what you did with the knowledge of Jesus. You know, you're not going to be able to stand before God and go, well, I didn't know. Because the Bible says in Romans that man is without excuse. So there's some, everyone on the planet has been given revelation of his son in some way. They'll be held accountable for what they know. And for the rejection of Jesus, the rejection of Messiah, they will be judged. That's the great white throne. For the Bema seat, for us, it's not a judgment of salvation, but of works, of action, of obedience. How do we spend our time? Where do we use our resources? How do we use our talents? Where is it? And again, in the context, you can see now, was it eternal or was it earthly? And it's a key for us to grasp that what we have done and what we do on earth as believers in Jesus will undergo some type. If you don't like the word judgment, even though the Bible says here the beam of seat judgment, think of it this way. They will be scrutinized. They will be investigated. They will be revealed. And we learned in a previous study in 1 Corinthians um, how what lasts, what's been of pure metal and what's been of gold and not wood, hay, and stubble, they get burned away. But what has of lasting value in your life, the things, like, like Jesus would say, if you've given a, cold, a cup of cold water to a prisoner or to someone in need, you've done it in my name. And you think, what's the significance of giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name? You'll find out at the Bema Seat. You'll find out. You go, Ed, I've given out a billion cups. Well, then, you know what? There's going to be a tremendous reward for you at the Bema Seat. You used water in a wise way. Just think about it. You just used water in a wise way. You used it for the glory of God. Nobody knows about it. You don't get headlines. Nobody's doing stories about it. Nobody's following you. You just, God put it on your heart to go down and give sandwiches away to the homeless. Well, that sandwich was given in Jesus' name, so now you've learned how to use bread and peanut butter in the name of Jesus. What's the big deal about bread and peanut butter? It can be used greatly for the kingdom of God. You see, you start thinking about this eternal perspective, you begin to see that even simple things like water can bring great glory to God. Not just water, giving water in Jesus' name, but think about how many 
I was talking to one of the families, um, uh, their daughter and their, hus- uh, their daughter's husband. Uh, they've gr- grown up here. They go to another church down, down in Denver. They're going to be heading out. I think he said Honduras. I forget exactly, but I asked him what they were doing. And uh, he's going to go out and they're going to dig wells. That's what they're doing. They're going out to dig wells. Why? To provide water to those that have need. And that's the whole trip. They're just going to dig well after well after well after well. And that, that brother knows how to use his time, knows how to use his resources, and knows how to use water unto the Lord. That's going to be something cool to find out at the Bema seat. It's when Jesus said in, in Matthew's gospel that what you, you, when you do your charitable deeds, you do them in secret. You do them not for the applause of men, not for the clap of men, not for everyone to see, but you do them in secret. And what is done in secret, what? The Father reward openly. Where? The Bema seat. It's powerful. We don't often think about, I, I don't know, I, just going through the study myself, I'm thinking, I'm, I wonder if I'm thinking about water the right way. You know, because, you know, the big thing in water right now is, and, and I don't know about you, but we just found out we can water one more day our grass. Woo, we're going to have green grass. But I wonder if God really wants me to think of water a different way, to use it for the, the kingdom of God. There's nothing wrong with watering your grass, but I don't think that's going to be a reward at the Bema seat. I don't think there's a line of, man, you had the greenest grass in your neighborhood, Ed. <laughs> I don't, but, but the guy two doors down does. Man, he's got like a golf course. It looks great. I don't. I never will. We try everything in the world to get that stuff to grow. It never will. But it doesn't matter because at the Bema seat, it's just going to all burn up anyway. It's not going to have any lasting effect. But I wonder if we saved the money and we actually did the math and we saved the money and go, you know, I'm not taking that extra day, but I'm going to dedicate whatever that is on the water bill because water is more valuable than gasoline. Um, and I could just do it and use it to bless somebody. And the Bema seat changes your mind about things because grass comes and goes. We have damaged our grass probably beyond repair. And ultimately, it doesn't really matter anyway because heaven and earth is going to pass away, but the word of God will not pass away. And the souls of men. That's the Bema seat. This is a significant verse in our lives. Because whatever we have done. Now we're not saved by works. That's not what this is saying here. This isn't saying make sure that you work, work, work. Because you need to be ready for the judgment seat. No, no. This is what have you done after being saved by the finished work of Jesus. This isn't work, work, work. And then you'll make it to the Bema seat. It's this. You believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you will be at the Bema seat, and your life will be examined right before their Bema seat or the judgment seat of Jesus. Today on Abounding Grace, Pastor Ed Taylor has been in the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going through the epistle from start to finish. To hear today's message again, go to calvaryco.church. And we have a couple of apps we'd like to recommend that are free and available on all platforms. This is another way to listen to Pastor Ed's teachings, including this present series in 2 Corinthians. Search for Calvary Aurora and download our church app and the Grace FM Colorado app, too. Pastor Ed, our pick of the month is Contented by Jeff Guype. I'm excited about offering this to our listeners, and I know you are, too. How might this be of help to them? Well, Pastor Jeff Guype is a good friend of mine. He pastors in Southern California, and he's just come out with a brand new book called Contented in All Things Peace. And, you know, a lot of people are asking, is this all there is? Is this it? Even like a drug, the benefits of power and money are transient. And there seems to always be a need for another fix. 
And it's until a person can step out of this paradigm that happiness will remain elusive. In Contented, Pastor Jeff helps us step out of this paradigm and into one solution that leads to finding peace in all things. Whether you've never set foot in a church or have been going to church for years, I know this book will put you on the path to true contentment, being satisfied with who you are and where you are and all that God is doing. And one of the reasons I love this book is it's written from a pastoral perspective. So it's like sitting down with a pastor talking about contentment. And I really want you to get this. Whether you get it here or you buy it online on Amazon, uh, you want to support Abounding Grace, great. But just get the book, be encouraged, and know that contentment is not as elusive as you think it is. Contentment is found by faith in Jesus Christ. We'll send you contented in all things peace when you give $25 or more to support Abounding Grace today. And please remember, it's your financial support that really helps us pay for radio time on stations like this one all across the nation. And if you'd like to help us reach people with the love and truth of Christ, please visit calvaryco.church or call 877-30-GRACE. Glad you've taken time out for our study. We'll bring you more from Pastor Ed Taylor's study of 2 Corinthians next time on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado.